But I ain't a conspiracy theory. I'm real. And I'm standing right here. And I know what the truth is. I knocked the shit out of this Chinese virus after about a week. When we talk about black magic, we are talking about Satanism, necromancy, alchemy, witchcraft, the worship of Satan, and the worship of dark forces. Welcome to the Wet Wired Podcast, Episode 2. This is Part 2 of Productivity Porn and the Protestant Ethic. From Scientific Management to Productivity Porn. Finally tonight, the century on Friday. It's about productivity. All sorts of businesses are finding all sorts of ways to make their workplace more efficient. And so tonight, what many people believe is the most important ism of the 20th century, as in Taylorism. It is sometimes argued that Taylorism has made the most lasting contribution to American thought since the Federalist Papers. Taylorism, you might ask? Chances are you live and work by it. Scientific management originated with Frederick Winslow Taylor and his book, Principles of Scientific Management, in 1911. Taylor's work was a, it was a rational effort to try to improve economic efficiency and specifically how productive workers were in a factory environment. It's one of the first stabs at trying to come up with a regimented way of looking at worker efficiency. Previous to the Industrial Revolution, there was an artisan-based production method that was being used by everybody, and that meant that everybody really did things their own way. If somebody was making something like machine parts, every worker that was doing this kind of a job in these smaller shops had their own way of going about things. And of course, younger workers are learning from the more experienced workers, but along the way, certain things are picked up on and replicated and certain things aren't. But there wasn't ever a concerted effort to try to come up with a system to try to understand how a particular job could be completed more efficiently. This is where Taylor found his niche. As an engineer himself, he was trying to come up with a way to add some logic and rationality to these specific tasks. Something that is just stands out as being exceptionally curious to me is that in 1911, when Taylor published his Principles of Scientific Management, this is just shortly after Weber had published in German his Protestant Ethic in the Spirit of Capitalism. This is less than a decade between the publication of these two books. Unless Taylor could read German or he got you know some sort of a, of a private translation of it, he probably didn't read anything that Weber wrote, but the ideas were there and the ideas were spreading. In spite of that fact, Taylor was actually advocating for something that Weber was commenting on specifically, which was this application of rationalism to human efforts. I think that two of them would probably have had an insane disagreement about which way we should be going forward in an industrializing world. So as I said, the principles of scientific management is built around 
this idea of rationality, of analysis, observation, and logic. To bring about this labor efficiency that he was trying to accomplish, Taylor really focused on time studies. This is an observational effort where he was basically sitting there with a stopwatch and watching different workers perform the same tasks. He later on expanded this to a white-collar environment where he would observe workers, how they reached for a piece of paper and put it into another pile to come up with a more efficient physical motion to get the paper from one spot to another. What Taylor was doing, it was an extreme amount of nitpicking of every aspect of worker actions in their workplace. There was nothing that was outside of his scrutiny. He would take all of these observations and then compare them and then come up with what he considered to be the most efficient way of doing a particular job or completing a particular task. Then he would pass this on as a consultant to managers of a factory floor or of some sort of a shop. Then it would be that manager's job to implement these things in the workplace. If that was all Taylor was up to, then it would definitely be something to pay attention to and maybe even push back against, depending on how extreme the expectations were on the individual worker. But that wasn't really everything that was going on in principles of scientific management. He had an entire ideological or philosophical foundation he called maximum prosperity. This is from Principles of Scientific Management. The principal object of management should be to secure the maximum prosperity for the employer coupled with the maximum prosperity for each employee. If you were listening to our conversation about John Deere and the ongoing strike and the relationship to the UAW, then you would have heard the comments from the financial analyst that's quoted in the ABC News article, the financial analyst from Seeking Alpha, echoing exactly this same sentiment, looking for a solution in his words that was going to be to the greatest benefit of workers and management. This idea of trying to find this sweet spot somewhere in worker satisfaction and worker prosperity, as well as maximizing profits, was an ongoing effort to find this sort of holy grail between workers and management. Back to principles of scientific management. The words maximum prosperity are used in their broad sense to mean not only large dividends for the company or owner, but the development of every branch of the business to its highest state of excellence, so that the prosperity may be permanent. In the same way, maximum prosperity for each employee means not only higher wages than are usually received by men of his class, but of more importance still, it also means the development of each man to his state of maximum efficiency, so that he may be able to do, generally speaking, the highest grade of work for which his natural abilities fit him. And it further means giving him, when possible, this class of work to do. He's talking about personally excelling in their ability to perform their job and to continuously be refining their skills, and then to be given more and more complicated work as they go on, as their skills improve. It would be so self-evident that maximum prosperity for the employer, coupled with maximum prosperity for the employee, ought to be the two leading objects of management, that even to state this fact should be unnecessary. And yet there is no question that, throughout the industrial world, a large part of the organization of employers as well as employees is for war rather than for peace, and that perhaps the majority on either side do not believe that it is possible so to arrange their mutual relations that their interests become identical. The majority of these men believe that the fundamental interests of employees and employers are necessarily antagonistic, 
Scientific management, on the contrary, has for its very foundation the firm conviction that the true interests of the two are one and the same, that prosperity for the employer cannot exist through a long term of years unless it is accompanied by prosperity for the employee. This sounds great. It really does. It, it, <laughs> it sounds like a fantasy, frankly. <laughs> it does in a way, but you know, at the same time, we have to be cautious not to start off from, from a cynical attitude about it and just assume that it's never going to work. Sure, sure, of course. But we have to be realistic and look to the instances of when has this ever been possible. It really does seem like the interests are mutually exclusive, that everything an employer gains equals a loss for the employee, and likewise. So it seems like a much more a much more reasonable expectation, a much more reasonable effort would be to come up with some sort of a compromise where, yes, nobody gets everything that they want, but everybody's happy enough with whatever negotiation they've arranged. It might even be at least with two feet on the ground to say from this perspective, which is not a perspective that I share necessarily, but even from this perspective with two feet on the ground, that you raise the profits and you raise the overall wealth of the company and you have the possibility of raising the income of everybody involved, but it's not necessarily that all these boats are rising with the same tide. And that's exactly what Taylor is talking about. He is specifically saying that all the boats can rise with the same tide. We hear the same language and we see people ma making these same sort of gestures now, except it's usually in the, in, in the sense of some kind of Reaganomics or something where if the richest among us have all these tax breaks, then somehow, almost magically, some measure <laughs> of this wealth is going to be transferred to the average person. Of course, I think it, it just has to be pointed out that that just never happens. And, and we have no evidence of it happening. It has never happened. This is a bullshit story that we've all been sold over and over and over again. Every time they want to push through some kinds of, of deregulation or reducing rules or something like that, that is sold to everybody as if it's going to somehow streamline business, get government out of the way, all these sorts of things that... As soon as we just say government out of the way of business, it will all get better. But when we look at, at this growing gap in pay between the average workers and the wealthiest people in the country, we see that this is just not the case. It has never been the case. All we've seen is that gap get larger and larger and larger and larger with every decade. I should point out on that same point that this is not a partisan issue uh, that Absolutely is exclusive no. to the Republican Party. To pick on somebody who is presently one of my favorites on whom to pick, Biden, uh, had been advocating neoliberal policies uh, yeah. well into the 70s. I think that we can really see the about face in the Democratic Party in a meaningful, measurable, and distinct way with Bill Clinton in the 90s. Some obvious examples that many people might know would be NAFTA being passed, but there are many other very distinctly neoliberal policies. And what we're talking about with Reaganomics is, is not just uh, laissez-faire taken to the extreme, but neoliberalism is a large part of what that is. And to clarify to listeners who might be thrown off a little bit by the terminology here, neoliberalism has no relationship whatsoever to the term liberal as it's commonly known in the United States. 
neoliberalism is an entirely separate thing where corporate interests and the the interests of the wealthiest individual are given preference over everybody else. Under this exact assumption that deregulation and preferential treatment towards uh, those who have capital is going to raise all of the boats. It's really just an elaborate system, neoliberalism that is, an elaborate system to justify exactly the same kind of bribery and kickbacks that Fiat Chrysler of America executives were convicted of in relation to the United Auto Workers. In the case of neoliberalism, whether we're talking about Republicans or Democrats, we're talking about a large, uh, you know, a relatively large group of politicians that are receiving direct personal benefit from these corporate interests. This whole idea of neoliberalism was just made up to justify maintaining this corrupt system. It's not really a, a political philosophy or an economic philosophy or anything like that. It is just an elaborate way of justifying this crony capitalism system. If anybody ever wonders why nothing ever happens in relation to passing any kind of serious regulations for large businesses, this is why. I, I think Frederick Hayek himself would be horrified at the development of the ideology and implementation of neoliberalism. Frederick Hayek is one of the key thinkers of the laissez-faire, let-it-be capitalist theory mm -hmm. in modern-day economics. And even he, as an interesting side note, advocated for a universal basic income, interestingly enough. That is interesting. And this is obviously not laissez-faire capitalism the way that anybody reasonably understands it. This is entirely separate. This system of neoliberalism has built into it all of these corporate bailouts. From uh, the financial crisis in 2008, you saw all of these, tr these hundreds of billions of dollars going to these bankers that caused the financial, the, the meltdown in the housing market in the first place. And then you saw it a continuation of those policies as soon as Obama took office. This has nothing to do with political party. Everybody is in on this. Oh, yeah. They are all neck deep in, the, in this kind of thinking. And it is against all of their individual self-interest to ever stop doing this. Because who wants to turn off the money machine? Obviously, nobody wants to do that. It's not just individual payouts or some, some allegation of bribes accepted by a senator or a representative. This is making these deals with the companies that they're going to vote a certain way so that they open up a factory in their, their district or in their state. And then when it comes time for re-election, they can say, I got that factory. That means that they get another term in office. And so the whole thing keeps rolling on. What Taylor is talking about here, where we can have some kind of a, of, of a situation where employer and employee are you know, getting this maximum prosperity in the way that he describes it, he goes on to say, and that it is possible to give the workman what he most wants, high wages, and the employer what he wants, a low labor cost for his manufacturers. How can this be? <laughs> he goes on to tell us. He, he tells us how he thinks this can be. We can just keep going and then we can decide whether or not what he's saying makes any sense at all. No one can be found who will deny that in the case of any single individual, the greatest prosperity can exist only when that individual has reached his highest state of efficiency. That is, when he is turning out his largest daily output. All right, so the more efficient the worker is, the more he's producing, 
and that's going to equal the greatest prosperity. This doesn't seem like a, a miss at all. I, I mean, of course, you get compensated for being better at your job. The truth of this fact is also perfectly clear in the case of two men working together. To illustrate, if you and your workmen have become so skillful that you and he together are making two pairs of shoes in a day, while your competitor and his workmen are making only one pair, it is clear that after selling your two pairs of shoes, you can pay your workmen much higher wages than your competitor who produces only one pair of shoes is able to pay his man. So, employer is making more profit because the efficiency is higher, which means the employer can afford to give the employee a raise. But does he? Nope. Not <laughs> if you're John Deere. <laughs> <laughs> and what interest would he if the employee would continue to work? Or the employer could just pocket the extra money. Yeah. And not pay any more than that. Not incentivize any more. Or just give them a pittance instead of sharing some of that profit. And in the case of the corporation, we can point out that they are legally and fiscally obligated to their shareholders to maximize the return on investment for shareholders each quarter, which means that even if they wanted to do the nice thing or the decent thing or you know whatever way you want to frame it, they are obligated to not do that if it means that they can make an extra bit of profit for the shareholders. All of the executive in a publicly traded corporation, at least, that has shares, this doesn't apply to a private company. C-Corps. S-Corps. Not S. Oh, I'm sorry. C-Corps. C-Corps exclusively. Yeah. And specifically, a company that has gone public as well. Yeah. They do have an obligation to the shareholders. They have an obligation to, to pay dividends and to do everything within their power and to be able to prove they've done everything within their power to make that happen. If they're not going to do that, then they have to be able to justify it. Uh, dividends, uh, just to clarify, uh, dividends uh, or uh, an increase in, in value uh, for right. those companies that do not return dividends. They do not have a similar responsibility to their employees to increase wages if company profits go up. That's a that's a curious arrangement that we have, and and the way that we see and the way they see the relationship between workers and and management and executives. There is really no incentive to increase wages unless there is collective bargaining, or the labor market is so competitive that they are worried that employees will go someplace else and get higher wages. So basically, if we see employees, workers, as selling their labor to employers, if it is a seller's market for labor, then they can just go someplace else. They can change jobs. That is not always possible, mainly due to geographic considerations. You can't always just uproot yourself or maybe your family in search of higher wages. That's not always a feasible thing to do. So we end up with some, some sticky points in the way Taylor is seeing things. On that, uh, just uh, not to interrupt too, too terribly much, but I do want to point on, on that very specific point that there is a, a book that's uh, by Roger Fisher and William Uri, at, I'm probably mispronouncing one of their names, called Getting to Yes. Probably not Fisher. <laughs> probably, probably, probably not that one. You, <laughs> <laughs> probably the getting, other one. You said it's called Getting to Yes? Getting to Yes. Um, the full title is Getting to Yes, Negotiated Agreement Without Giving In. They're, they're, uh, they're professors at 
Harvard or Stanford or somewhere, negotiation is their field. But what I, what I think is interesting about this book is that it, it, it talks about uh, a specific phrase called BATNA, uh, or acronym, if you will, uh, Best Alternative to Negotiated Agreement. And one of the arguments that they make in this book is that it's not necessarily about how much money or potential violence you have uh, in terms of a negotiation. It's what your best alternative to negotiation negotiated agreement is. And if you go into a negotiation where your best alternative is not good, then you need to make that negotiation work. You're not in a good position. If you could take it or leave it, then you're in a very good position. From this point of view, we can understand labor relations, I think, very well. The worker who maybe has one or two or fewer paychecks before they're in a really bad situation has not a very good best alternative to negotiated agreement compared to the employer who can survive with or without that worker for a period of time that who knows how long that is. And from that point of view, we can really understand these kinds of negotiations a lot better when we understand that this isn't a fair trade between two people on the street. This is a, a, a trade between people if we're understanding labor to be a trade, as if you will, where in many cases, these workers do not have the luxury of saying no. Yeah, that's actually something that came up, the, uh, this luxury of saying no, which is also a luxury to go on strike for. That came up in a recent, I, wa- I want to say it was another UAW situation involving Volvo workers uh, earlier in the year, or maybe it was in, uh, in 2020. Basically, UAW strangled the possibility of that strike lasting as long as it needed to to exert enough pressure to actually get a good get a good uh, negotiated contract by restricting how much the workers could receive from the general strike fund they restricted it to something like $249 a week or something like that <laughs> so obviously the average person in the US couldn't live on that much money for maybe more than 1 week out of the month and yeah. after that, it w- and maybe not even that much, this presented a definite expiration date for how long this could last. And so, of course, it did not last as long as it possibly could have. Keep in mind that this is a, this strike fund, I, I don't have the article in front of me to know these exact numbers, but that at the time, that strike fund had hundreds of millions of dollars in it. And meanwhile, we're talking about a couple of thousand workers drawing 250 bucks a week. That was another instance of UAW not doing everything it could in, on, on behalf of the uh, UAW workers. All right, so going back to Taylor, this is where it really gets kind of wonky. Taylor delivers this example. I almost wonder if I should preface it or just dive in. Uh, I don't even know. I, I'm just going to dive in. <laughs> he gives an example of a worker giving their best at the job. But how how he how he delivers this is really funny. These principles appear to be so self-evident that many men may think it almost childish to state them. Let us, however, turn to the facts as they actually exist in this country and in England. The English and American peoples are the greatest sportsmen in the world. Whenever, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Whenever 
I didn't whenever mean to... an American workman plays baseball or an English workman plays cricket, it is safe to say that he strains every nerve to secure victory for his side. He does his very best to make the largest possible number of runs. The universal sentiment is so strong that any man who fails to give out all there is in him in this sport is branded as a quitter and treated with contempt by those who are around him. When the same workman returns to work on the following day, instead of using every effort to turn out the largest possible amount of work, in a majority of the cases, this man deliberately plans to do as little as he safely can to turn out far less work than he is able to do, in many instances, to do not more than one-third to one-half of a proper day's work. And in fact, if he were to do his best to turn out his largest possible day's work, he would be abused by his fellow workers for so doing even more than if he had proved himself a quitter in sport. It actually keeps going with this really strained example. Underworking, that is, deliberately working slowly. Oh, let me say that again with the right emphasis. Underworking, that is, deliberately working slowly so as to avoid doing a full day's work. Soldiering, as it is called in this country. Hanging it out, as it is called in England. Kakane, as it is called in Scotland is almost universal in industrial establishments and prevails also to a large extent in the building trades. And the writer asserts without fear of contradiction that this constitutes the greatest evil with which the working people of both England and America are now afflicted. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) The greatest evil top-notch verbiage he's basically he's drawing a comparison between how enthusiastically someone plays in their in their softball league over the weekend and how hard they work on monday at their job he ignores so many obvious problems with this example but it's it is amazing that he see he he may very sincerely see the world this way this might not be taylor bullshitting us and coming up with an obviously preposterous example it is wild that he might actually see the world this way. He might actually see the dynamic between workers and employers in this way. I, he actually spends a good deal of time talking about the evils of soldiering, as he describes it, which is obviously terminology from the, from I the think beginning of, of the 20th Lucille century. I think of Lucille Bluth in Arrested Development in that one scene where he says, just let let them take the bananas, Michael. How much could it cost? Ten dollars? <laughs> <laughs> he he obviously is just not he is not really aware of anything that's going on here. And he spends a lot of time talking about soldiering. He really keeps harping on this idea. The obvious thing here is that he's that he's I mean, maybe intentionally oblivious to is that games are usually yeah. fun. Playing games is usually a fun thing that people do. Work isn't fun. And you think that obligatory out of a financial necessity. It's typically meaningless for the individual performing the task. It is a monotonous activity often. It it involves very little creativity or anything that the worker could ever consider to be interesting in a lot of cases. And basically the this is not a, a spectrum of, you know, skilled versus unskilled. You can have an entirely skilled workforce or, you know, a very well-trained workforce to say that in a, in a, not such a stupid way, but you can have a very well-trained workforce engaging in very skilled labor that 
is boring and monotonous because you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. Just look at the tech companies in here in Seattle where uh, I have plenty of friends who want to uh, make yeah. confetti of their brains with with the monotony and drudgery of their pretty well-paid and highly – I don't know if educated is the word, uh, but like – it's a pretty refined skill. You know, Taylor's solution to this is to really just grind the thumb screws. His solution to soldiering is to introduce peace rate compensation. Which was mentioned in part one regarding the yes. peasants <laughs> in pre-industrial, before, before industrial yeah, capitalism. And so, so basically, workers will get paid based on how much they produce. Which, on the surface, that doesn't seem like it's an unreasonable thing to do. But when you can buy, when, when you can start to consider that the work that they're doing is oftentimes insufferable, then it actually seems like a really offensive thing to do to start paying them by piece rate. This builds in incentives to overwork, incentives to not take breaks, incentives to not eat lunches. All of these things are built in. Even in an environment where, and you know, typically peace rates are not allowed in most work situations. You have very specific situations that allow for peace rates. And I mean, actually, like sales are one of those areas where, where it is a form of peace rate work because you tend to only receive compensation on, uh, on sales that you've completed. So you get commission. There doesn't tend to be a base salary for most sales jobs. So you're really not making any money unless you're working, which means you are definitely incentivized to work long at longer hours, uh, way outside of the eight-hour workday with no overtime compensation. You're, you're incentivized to not call in for uh, call in sick, to take personal days, to take vacations, because during all of this time you have no income. And and on top of it, you're you're often disincentivized towards cooperation. In, in yes. general things that yes. would be helpful for the overall workflow because that just takes away from your, your own personal incentives. Right, because there, there, there is no compensation for work that is completed as a group or as a team. You don't get anything extra by working together with others, so you're, you, you're incentivized to be more and more isolated from your coworkers and see your coworkers as competitors rather than, uh, you know, than as colleagues. Peace, I mean, peace rate. <laughs> you know, that's that's we, awful. We could, we could make yeah. 10 episodes about just peace rate. Yeah, we could come up with a lot of examples where this is, I hope to God we don't do 10 episodes about peace rate. That, no, that no, would, no, obviously not. That sounds boring. Talk about oppressive. <laughs> that, would, that would be horrible. As bad as working for peace rate. So we get to the something of a conclusion about this, about about Taylor and, and the efforts that he made in these uh, these different factories. What we find out is that it worked. Productivity went up. Taylor never takes any polls about worker satisfaction or sanity or anything like that, but they did produce more. And, and I, would, I would even argue uh, on that specific point that we're not looking at any other metrics. And I think one of the things that is so challenging about this when we're, when we're examining it uh, is that we're not looking at uh, whether we're talking about piece rate or just hourly wage or some combination of the two. We're not looking at workers' control of production um, or workers' participation in whether we're talking about investment 
or if we're talking about policy or day-to-day operations, that's totally divorced from his model. Oh, but I mean, Julian, come on, workers in control of production? I mean, seriously, how's that going to work? They're filthy, they're, they're <laughs> filthy brutes. How could they possibly <laughs> be in charge of anything? Jeez. I'd call them Neanderthals, but we recently yeah. learned that they were actually pretty smart. Yeah, I mean, this isn't even this is not even up to that quite, uh, uh, not even up to that level of intelligence when we're talking about workers. <laughs> we don't need to mention that when we were talking when we talk about small business statistics that yeah, most small businesses fail within the first year, and something like uh, only forty percent of them succeed uh, in 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 a longer term. But but worker- and by succeed we mean past what like three or five years, I think. Yeah, but most uh, but eighty percent. You know, 40% of small businesses, but 80% of worker-owned cooperatives succeed. Obviously, you know, those workers don't know anything. They're backwards brutes, clearly. (laughs) So Taylor pulled this off. He was able to increase productivity in all of these environments. But the same problem surfaces that comes up earlier on that he just sort of glosses over and he sees in this rosy sort of way, which is answering the question of who benefits from these productivity increases. Do workers' wages increase commensurate with the increase in production or the increase in profit? And typically the answer is absolutely no. And it's because there's no incentive for it. If there isn't a competitive labor environment where a worker can take, can sell their labor to another employer for a higher rate, then there is no incentive present at all outside of legislation and enforced, uh, enforced minimum wages that makes the employer pay them more. And unions that have some kind of power with, through collective bargaining. Or, or some sort of a power dynamic through collective bargaining. And it, it really should be pointed out that, uh, that Taylor was no fan of unions. No way. I wonder why. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> some other things came out of this as well from Taylor's work. That documenting these processes so thoroughly, and he was really good at this. He was really precise in documenting these tasks. So something else came out of that is that now with all this documentation, it is much, much easier to train replacement workers that are willing to accept lower wages. I don't think that this was, this was something that, uh, that, well, it's hard for me to believe that this was part of Taylor's agenda to replace skilled labor with unskilled labor and simply come up with a, an effective training process. But the benefit was immediately seen by, by employers. And so they took this documentation of the tasks that were completed in their factories and in their shops, and they used it to replace skilled workers that wanted higher wages with new workers that didn't know anything about the wage structure and were willing to work for less, basically because they were unskilled. And to get a job that was above what anybody else was paying them was a great thing. And then they would get trained and then they you know, eventually get a raise here and there. This also made outsourcing labor decades later, it made outsourcing labor to lower paid international markets much more feasible because you could take, in the, in the case of, you know, maybe something like Zenith Televisions, that was, a, that was an early outsourcing example, I think, where they took their U.S. production of televisions, I think in the 60s or the 70s, and moved it to Mexico, all of it. So their entire workforce was in Mexico. Nothing against the the workers in Mexico. Obviously, they want jobs. They want to feed their families. That's not unreasonable. The workers in the U.S. wanted more money, and instead of paying them something that was probably close to the standard in the market at the time, 
they decided to save all this money and to take their documentation of of workers' jobs and go train people in this market that had a much lower wage. It, it really it really created the possibility of creating a mold that you could pour the worker into. It absolutely was like a, a mold that you like could a pour car. a worker into. You could take a, a raw, uh, like a unskilled worker and train them to do this job. And then all of a sudden you have a new worker in this in another market with much lower wages. The effect is that the company continues making more and more money. And again, this profit is not transferred to any workers. It is just pocketed. And the worker becomes much more of a raw material. Yes, and, the, and the worker becomes much more of a raw material. This documentation also open the door for more and more automation of these repetitive tasks. As machinery became more and more advanced, they were able to more effectively replicate the the motions of the workers with machines. We're not talking about even robots on a production line or something like that. We are talking about a machine that, you know, imagine this production environment with a conveyor belt where some product in some state of completion rolls through the conveyor belt it enters into the machine, and then by the end of it, we have a, a finished product that had a fraction of the number of human hands touching it as, as, as it had before. The number of human touches on this product were, are, are much, much fewer now. This is not necessarily... In, including the likes of Lucy, if this, you will. Yeah, right, exactly. I think, yeah, think about the, uh, the bottling factory in the beginning of uh, <laughs> Laverne and Shirley. <laughs> oh, no, I, I was thinking about uh, uh, I Love Lucy. I don't know what you're talking about. Where they're on the assembly line with the chocolates. No, I've never seen it. <laughs> you're on your, you're on your oh. own, buddy. <laughs> All right. Well, then my my reference is just a fucking dud there. <laughs> my, that 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 mode of, right. moment of comedy genius is lost on me. I'll have to find it. <laughs> and I and I tried twice to beat that. <laughs> that. So this uh. All right. This automation it led to a decrease in the overall workforce requirements for employers. They needed fewer and fewer people as time went on. This was great for business owners, but it ravished one sector of the American economy after another. And it basically forces workers, and it really changed the, the, uh, the, the landscape of the American economy from decade to decade. In the early 1900s, it was agriculture that was hit. Automation in agriculture and efficiency and efficiency gains drove agricultural workers into manufacturing. Right now, even to this day, we're, we're around 1%. Uh, labor in agriculture, right? But moment. we, but our, in but our productivity States. is higher than it ever was, and this because there's exactly. fewer and fewer individuals working in agriculture. But the same thing happens in manufacturing. Our overall uh, manufacturing productivity is not really down. You know, in the U.S., it, we have this idea that all this manufacturing has gone overseas, and but there is a great deal of manufacturing that happens in the U.S., just not a lot of manufacturing workers. Because of the, yeah. the degree that things have been automated, and we're we're at like something like seventy percent and some change service industry. Well, to see, you're, yeah, you're you're States. you're anticipating where I'm headed right now. So, oh, uh, so my bad. <laughs> so these workers were driven into manufacturing in the middle of the century, but then really beginning in the uh, in the later part of the seventies through the nineteen eighties and in, and well into the present up to the current day. Everybody has been pushed from manufacturing, or a great deal of these workers has been pushed from manufacturing into the service industry. And so far, I, I think largely because of the variety of tasks that are involved in the service industry, this has been a harder one to automate. 
I'm going to get into some of the uh, some of the extreme initiatives at efficiency in the modern workplace, but the service industry is is hard to automate. It is much easier, and this is a counterintuitive conclusion until you start really thinking about it. Maybe just give yourself a minute. <laughs> Maybe it took me really thinking about it. <laughs> it turns out that it is much easier to automate the work of a of a cancer doctor than it is to automate the work of a janitor. Now you would yeah. think that, oh, you know, this is the janitor's work is so much less skilled, requires so much less training and so much less knowledge than than the than the cancer doctor. But a an, a computer with machine learning can be trained trained to do almost every diagnostic aspect of the cancer doctor's job better than the doctor can. And the the actual you know actual surgery itself, robotics has gotten to the point that it can perform a lot of this surgery better than a doctor can perform it. That's incredible. But yet there is absolutely no advancement toward being able to mop floors and clean things and wipe down doorknobs and do all this work that is required to maintain a facility on a daily basis. There is very little work that's been that that are very little uh, uh, accomplishments in trying to automate that process. There's simply too much going on. There's too many complex physical movements happening that robots simply can't do it. I mean, you can remember um, those terrifying in a lot of cases videos from uh, uh, what's the company uh, Boston Dynamic, the like the the, the oh, robots. Yes. Are we talking about the doggos? Yeah. Well, one of them was this terrifying looking, like walking on two feet machine that's walking across this lab and in this in this uncanny sort of inhuman way because its knee joints go the reverse direction and and then it goes up and it you know it looks terrifying, but yet it's it's absolutely foiled by a round doorknob. It can't open it. <laughs> I mean, maybe you can put some kind of a machine gun on this thing. It can just shoot its way out of the lab, but it can't turn a knob. There, you know, there's some challenges still. <laughs> and, and I, and I, in my mind, I even think of, I even think of how do you spot the um, dirt in the grout between tiles right? in in elementary school, yeah. uh, and then move directly from that to mopping yeah. the floor and then move right from that uh, to making sure that you've sprayed down the windows and, and ensured that the window is clean once you finish spraying it down. I mean, it, it doesn't seem that remarkable, but only because we don't think because of it we don't, we, we, that these are complex exactly, tasks because we, with a lot of variables going on. We're so familiar with it as in the sense that we're, we're so used to it happening and seeing other people do tasks like this, that we don't think about how complex this process is. It is incredibly complicated, and and to ask a single a single machine to do both of these those things to go from wiping down a window to mopping the floor to maybe being able to change a light bulb or something like that 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 is an insane degree of complexity. They you know we can't even automate stocking shelves in a grocery store with a with a machine. Yeah. We are really quite a ways away from that sort of complexity. It's only shocking because people don't pay attention, like you said. That's why it's surprising to us that the job of the of the oncologist is more easy to replicate by a machine than the job of a janitor. 
it's such a narrow field of variables. We, we live in this, this is a tangent, but I'm going to do it anyway. Our current culture is so in love with intellectualized ideas of things. We exalt the ability to think through things to such an extent that we don't realize how, how easy it is to replicate that effort with a machine. We think that that is the, the pinnacle of, 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 human, uh, of, of human efforts to be able to do something like go to Harvard Law or become a, you know, an oncologist. And we don't realize that what this guy is doing is essentially pattern matching. That's it. He is looking yeah. at a bunch of things and looking for a pattern. He's like, you know, he sees a bunch of x-rays and he says, you know, one of these things doesn't look like the other. <laughs> it's a highlights book, but seriously, yeah, it is like the same effort that a kid does when they do the highlights book in the dentist's office. It's not nearly as thrilling as we make it out to be. And the machine does it yeah. better. The machine isn't fooled by the fake yeah. tumor. The one that we thought was a tumor, or maybe we didn't notice it was a tumor. It routinely catches things, you know, this, these machine learning examples, and they're not perfect either. Plenty of kinks to be worked out. They're only as good as the data set that they're fed. To build that data set of positives for the presence of tumors in an x-ray or in an MRI, we need, we need skilled doctors that are going to identify those as positive examples. And then those positive examples are fed to the machine learning uh, program, and then now it's good. But it's only as good as the data that's fed to it. If there's, a, if there's faulty examples or false positives in, mixed in with that data set, then the machine is going to come up with false positives too. This is an example of Taylorism. This is the same pattern at work again. The more, that the, the more closely we observe the task of the oncologist and document it, the better we're able to automate it with a machine. It's the same exact thing that happened in manufacturing. So we're going to see the same kind of push out of these fields in medicine and in diagnostic type environments, uh, we're going to see the same sort of displacement by automation. It is just a matter of time before that happens. And speaking of displacement, we, we face the problem, I think, at least in capitalism and present day late stage capitalism, as I understand it to be, that with this increased productivity from uh, not only from machine learning, AI, automation, uh, more efficient use of energy, not just uh, the advent in the in the 20th century of fossil fuels and the rest of it, but a number of other variables besides that really maximize the potential output overall of factories, fields, and everything else besides beyond what each individual is able physically to contribute in terms of brains and muscle. These technological advancements in energy and intelligence do not necessarily translate to fewer hours worked for no. the worker or more money no. made for the worker. And I think that, that is the crucial point here where we have this imagination of this utopian future from technology where machines do all the things that comes from the 20th century and especially the early 20th century that, uh, oh, well, we, we won't have to do, we won't have to lift a finger because we'll have effectively these mechanical slaves yeah. and the reality is it's quite the opposite and we can see that in the statistics since well the 70s at least in the united states yeah we we don't we don't have any structure in place to sort of spread the wealth in a sensible way i mean i think the efforts at ubi are probably the best stab that we have at this right now but again 
this is that UBI is another topic that we cannot talk about sensibly because everybody's coming into it with their their deck full of of ideological foundations where they're where they're either in favor of it or against it. Sometimes both on either side you can find these ridiculous reasons to be for or against it. On one side in the pro camp, you know, you're looking at at people who you can find people at least that think that it's the next step, but right before we get to Star Trek future, where everything is just a life of leisure, like you were saying, because of the robot slaves. And then on the other side, you think that once people you know, are getting paid to do nothing, that we're, they're just going to start sucking at the system like leeches, and then they'll, they'll never do anything in their lives. And ironically, that comes from an almost anti-socialist right-wing mentality. Yeah, well, but typically, in my experience... A lot of the socialists also hate UBI because they view it as this sort of um, compromise of yeah, capitalization. Yeah, that we're going to give you money so that you don't pay attention to what we're doing over here. Yeah, or or that it'll prolong how long we have to live under yeah. capitalism because there's some sort of an accelerationist attitude that it, it needs to uh, crash before it can whatever. Those people, the accelerationist <laughs> people, the worst. <laughs> In my opinion, anyways. But yes, and, and uh, you know, as an, I think, an interesting side note, when we look at who advocated the UBI, it's some unexpected characters. I mentioned earlier Frederick yeah. Hayek, but also uh, Nobel Prize winning economist Milton uh-huh. Friedman, who also basically a relatively laissez-faire yeah, I, I, I have to uh, I have to admit that I'm immediately suspicious that the socialist attitude that UBI is a way to buy off the average citizens might be what uh, Milton Friedman had his, has in his back pocket as his real motivation. <laughs> yeah, is it Milton? Fr- I, I I'm I'm suddenly suspicious that I'm saying the right name right now. But go ahead. Go anyway. Carry on with what you were saying, and I'll correct myself. So accordingly. all all this leads us up with, with that reflection on how workers are being displaced from one sector to the next up until the present to where we are right now. And there is a, there are some legacy aspects of Taylorism of scientific management that have that are that are very well entrenched in the workforce right now. One of these things is is called behavioral science. On its own, behavioral science is really a collection of psychological principles, but it has been very heavily employed in the workplace, specifically by businesses like Google and Apple. It's very popular with the, with the, uh, with the tech crowd. It is a whole collection of ways that they've systematized that are very effective at motivating workers to work more. It is an alternative to this sort of uh, stick, and, uh, stick and carrot mentality. It's a way to convince workers to be more motivated in the workplace without knowing they've been motivated. Uh, they've been their motivation's been increased. You can find it in the way that the campuses are set up in some of these large technic campuses. Google includes everything you possibly could want at its campus. There's laundry services. There's restaurants. There's coffee. There's all of these spaces that they've designed for you to go and relax. Game and the, recreation areas. Exactly places to take. N- I mean. As a reminder to those listening, I live in places Seattle. to take naps, places to go <laughs> chat with people, park-like environments all over the place, exercise facilities. You name it, there is all this stuff there on the campus. So you think like, oh, what a great place to work! This place is awesome. It's amazing. It's you know, it's like being at the start at Starfleet Academy or something like that. 
But what they've actually done and what, what's motivated them to, to provide all these amenities for their workers is the realization that the nicer they make this campus, the more people are going to want to stay there and, and the, longer, the longer they're going to stay at campus rather than leaving and going, going home. The more they spend time there, the more they're going to interact with people in their own teams, in their own departments, in other, with other teams and other departments. The more that they're, they're going to talk about work things on their own time. They're not getting paid for this stuff, but they're still there. And so all of these conversations are incredibly fruitful in the wash when, when Google considers the bottom line. And this is very forward thinking of, of Google. It's very clever. And, and frankly, I mean, it, it's kind of like a pizza party. Too it, and it really is. But just imagine you're in this great environment that where you have all this stuff that you enjoy, but you're always at the everybody that you meet at the party is from your job. And if you've ever been to a work party, people can't help but to talk about work, even though they're not getting paid for it. They have nothing else to talk about. Yeah. They're immersed in it in a way that is probably incredibly unhealthy, but that's all they talk about. They don't talk, they're not talking about other things, or at least they're largely talking about only work stuff. They come to all kinds of realizations about things. They, they have new ideas about work problems and how to solve them. This is one of the legacies, is this approach to suss out even more effort at worker efficiency. The other thing is, it's a lot more, it's just a lot more terrible than, than the uh, behavioral science. Behavioral science is bad enough because <laughs> it is really a large scale industrialized effort to manipulate people into doing stuff that you want them to do. The other approach is the Amazon style. Yeah. Now, if you work on the tech side of Amazon, then you know you're you're living in the same sort of campus utopia that the Google the Google employees are enjoying. Uh, really quick, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I have to point out right by the bus stop uh, that I will often take when I'm not riding my bike to work. Uh, there is a little cart that's out in front of one of the many Amazon buildings. Um, that's, it's literally called the banana stand, <laughs> which, which if you like Arrested uh -huh. Development, it's very funny. There's a little sign on it that says, have a banana. Uh -huh. It's not just for Amazon employees. And it's just, it's like, it's for the community. And there's, there's a guy out there and I saw it this morning. There's a guy out there and he gives you a banana. You want a banana? Here's a banana. Yikes. It's the, it's the whole story. But it's this, it's this almost like dystopian mixed with utopian. Yeah, they, they want they, they want you to forget about the uh, the employees that had to pee in bottles to deliver your shit to your house. They want you to forget about yeah. the fact that people yeah. don't have enough time to make it to the bathroom on their break because it's so far away from their workstation. Yeah, and, you know, they want they want you to forget that the and and I'm just going to talk about the Amazon stuff, the workflow management systems that you know that systematize repetitive tasks and and reduce the number of decisions that workers need to make which is basically a monitoring system so you're you're effectively under house arrest the entire time you're at work because your whereabouts are constantly tracked they want you to forget about that kind of stuff when with something like the banana stand <laughs> that's actually a heinous thing to do it's insulting it's insulting those guys are so gross I mean, beyond insulting, but I'm saying on top of everything else. This sort of uh, digital tailorism, you know, as it's called, 
is really heavily focused on definitely privacy invading technology that monitors worker activity and worker movement. One of the things that Amazon has been has implemented in the last couple of years is this uh, is a wristband that tracks the arm movements of the worker to determine in, in this exactly the same fashion that Taylor did if they're moving efficiently enough. The worker literally is wearing an ankle bracelet on their wrist, tracking what they're doing. It's a di- it's a di- digital shackle. Something that Cory Doctorow uh, has has brought up, and and I actually I, I think this might originally be uh, uh, it might not be his, and he might have been uh, paraphrasing somebody else. Typically, technology is implemented and 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 refined on the uh, the the lowest uh, strata of society. And then it it's it continuously makes its way up, you know this sort of oppressive technology that is there there's an opposite trend for beneficial technology that actually helps people. The oppressive technologies tend to be experiment uh to, like the experiments tend to be run on the populations that that are least advantaged in our society, namely prisons. This ankle monitor technology is an example of something that was is first off tried out on people who have been arrested or people who have been convicted and are placed under house arrest. Now it's made its way up into things like Fitbits and the surveillance <laughs> yeah. wrist- wristbands in Amazon warehouses. Another example of that is CCTV technology and wiretapping. So it used to be that you could only monitor somebody 100% of the time when they were in a, in a penitentiary. That was where you could put the cameras and watch somebody all day long. Now we have cameras all over the place. We have them on our doorsteps. If you have, if you have a ring doorbell, we have cameras everywhere. We have them in our phone, on your laptop. You know, another thing, you know, with the wiretapping is that that was something that previously you required a court order to get because it was so invasive. You had to have a judge authorizing this intrusion into somebody's private world. And now we have Amazon Echo and Google Home and Sonos. All these things that are listening to us all the time. This is this digital panopticon. This trend is definitely taken advantage of in this digital Taylorism movement. All these observational technologies. Amazon has cameras that are driver facing inside of the vehicles. They're not watching the road. They're watching the driver. As soon as the driver goes to work, he's on camera all day long getting watched. What's done with this footage? What happens with it? How is it used? It may sound it may sound cynical, but I think it's totally I think it's totally justified to have the position that I can't imagine anything good that happens with that footage for anybody, except for Amazon. Amazon's yeah. the one that benefits yeah. from that from that kind of behavior. The worker isn't benefiting from this. Amazon's shareholders. And eventually the shareholders and Jeff Bezos, the number two richest person in the world. Uh, Who took the number one? Elon Musk. Ah, that fuck. (laughs) (laughs) This idea, you know, there's a a number of of places to look at, of places to look for more information about this. And I'm just going to throw some things out there. One that really stands out is called The New Ruthless Economy. That one, that that book is by Simon Mead. It's focused on the 1990s, and it looks at how management's compensation soared, and most worker wages were remained stagnant or actually got rolled back to some extent 
in relation to the uh, in relation to the cost of living. And the other book that I came across when I was doing this research is called Counterproductive by Melissa Gregg. I came across her from a uh, an article in Harper's called You Must Change Your Life. That was a, a a revealing discussion of a lot of these topics that that we you know that that we've been talking about. Greg is referred uh, is mentioned in this article, and they're discussing a fundamental shift from a pre-war understanding of corporate work as a cooperative endeavor to a neoliberal one, founded on the idea of competition in which workers are encouraged to think of themselves as independent entrepreneurs selling their skills to the corporate buyer. So Melissa Gregg calls this executive athleticism, a culture in which the workplace is an arena for showy feats of individual productivity. She talks uh, about how people are not receiving the rewards of their hard work, and that there's there's you know there's actually this this uh, this disincentive, or rather this incentive to do exactly what Taylor was talking about in the principles of scientific management. There is an incentive to work less because you don't get anything for working more. You're not you're you're not really benefiting. Specifically, younger people are beginning to realize that all of the education and experience is no guarantee to get anything more out of their labor efforts. The empty promises of being able to buy new cars or own your own home are not nearly as easy to come by as they were 40 or 50 years ago. This is an impossibility for most people in my age group. And if they do buy something, they're forced to buy a home in an incredibly undesirable area that is either very far away from where they work, which means that they have a rough commute every day and they spend their life on the road with this back and forth, or they're buying an incredibly expensive home if they, if they actually want to live closer to where they work. And on top of it, it's a dubious investment at best. In well, yeah, I mean, and where you know, once you're finished paying it off, yeah. if you do, and it's not, it's, it's not always it's a smart thing to buy a house. A wash. She talks about in in her book Counterproductive that the dwindling supply of secure, predictable jobs, combined with a cutthroat job market for heavily indebted college graduates, creates pressure to prove one's ongoing value. And this is the segue into productivity porn. For the generations making a living in the shadow of the organization, the productivity imperative is an intimate interpolation. It is the cumulative effect of corporate cost-cutting measures that urge employees to, quote, do more with less and work smarter, not harder. This drive has been going on for the, you know, has has really been uh, getting pushed for the last 30 or 40 years now. This is something that we really saw conceived of as as an entire area of self-help productivity self-help in the in the 1980s this is the the creation of successories and motivational posters and <laughs> that was the original productivity porn which is a very pleasant picture and a completely meaningless bit of advice in corporate speak underneath it on a black background someone climbing a mountain don't give up or <laughs> yeah. never give in or you know what or or the cute kitten yeah well that now now that that's the, actually the... quite a bit older <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah oh. but you're right that actually predates <laughs> the successories all of this competitive executive athleticism and the the very dismal job market for for younger people and you know and honestly for you know for 
for older people as well. I mean, the job market isn't so hot for people in their in you know, their late 30s and 40s either. Has led to this growing trend to come up with side hustles. We can draw a line from these first organized attempts at worker time management way back with Taylor through using behavioral science at work and then into what Greg called executive athleticism straight into productivity porn. This is where it always goes. It starts off with all this self-help stuff that somebody, whether or not they actually knew what they were talking about, they wrote a book and they immediately become an expert. This is the person that we're looking to, to guide us into how to get better at our job, how to use our time more effectively, to not waste things, to get more productive, get more done, how to sleep better so that I can work harder the next day. What that has led to is these dozens and dozens and hundreds of Instagram accounts and TikTok, pro, uh, TikTok profiles and Twitter superstars that are all selling the same thing, which is the solution to your problem. And we just look at it and don't do anything. Motivation Instagram is an absolute cesspool of people that are trying to make money off of other people being desperate you can see how unhappy people are with their jobs, but they've also been sold this idea by this self-help crowd that they need to follow their heart and they need to live their dreams. Hashtag van life. And fucking Tony Robbins. And Tony Robbins. Uh, and that, type you know, that characters. The motivation Instagram is filled with the same sort of platitudes, filled with these same sort of hollow statements as those old motivational posters. It's exactly the same kind of stuff. Except now it mixes it in with luxury porn. So you'll have, instead of the, the serene background of somebody climbing the mountain and doing something exciting and adventurous while you're, you know, your fat ass sits at your desk for another 10 hours today, now you're looking at a Ferrari and a beautiful woman sitting in the passenger seat with the driver door open. It's that fucking Britney song, Work Bitch. There's accounts like the Success Club with 1.2 million followers filled with these, you know, some quote and a picture of a celebrity. It's great. They don't even try to tell you that the celebrity actually said the thing that is printed on the picture. It'll just be a picture of Will Smith and then some random like snippet from like a Robert Frost poem. I saw one with Denzel Washington where I don't know what the, where this is going, but Denzel Washington did, did not say that thing. Well, and, and I even I even see on TikTok, uh, Bo Burnham, the the comedian and and musical artist, uh -huh. had a special that came out on Netflix that was incredibly popular because, in my opinion, it was absolute gold. But every single one of his songs, as as um, sounds, dominated TikTok and continues to do so. Mm -hmm. And one of the ones of his is about Jeff Bezos. It's clearly a satirical song, but what's wild to me is that I see so many TikToks that use that sound, mm -hmm. it's, it's use that as a clip, um, as like the background sound, kind of unironically doing like some sort of like athletic thing, like almost like as I just mentioned, like, like Britney's work bitch, where it's just sort of like be motivational. Mm -hmm. And it and it's it's really satirizing this sort of hero worship of these billionaires. 
I agree with that, but I don't even think it's satire, though. I'm not positive that it's satire in a lot of cases. I don't think they're using it in an ironic sort of sense where they're they're actually – Oh, like, no, not at all. I'm saying oh, okay. in the context of these TikToks. Oh, I'm yeah. saying like okay. they're using this song, which is very clearly pointing out the absurdity of the hero worship of Bezos and billionaires uh-huh. and unironically using that song to be like a motivational song for like some sort of like do-it-yourself – Pull yourself up by your bootstraps video. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So are are we seriously engaging in a uh in an intellectual discussion about Britney Spears right now? Sure, why not? Uh, yeah, we just did that, didn't we? <laughs> you did that. I did not do that. <laughs> uh, but uh and, and by the way, I'm gonna keep uh, rolling I'm only through mentioning these. her song. <laughs> I'm only mentioning I'm only mentioning her song Work Bitch, uh-huh. uh, which is not ironic and not satirical. I guarantee um, you I cannot come up with a single title of any Britney Spears song. No, no, no. She in the song, the lyrics go something along the lines of, "You want to, you want a Maserati? You got to work, bitch." Yes, you do. That's you do that. That's her. That's her whole shtick in that song. And but uh, she's probably talking to her father in that, you know, because he just keeps stealing all of her money. Well, yeah. So if she wants a Maserati, or if he wants one, he should be working for it and not stealing her money to buy it. (laughs) Yeah. so Uh, but but oh you just got to get this point out don't you all right go ahead i mean i I lost where i was going with it anyway so it's a wash that was a wash that was such a tangent (laughs) so these we might might cut that in post i don't think so i so these motivation instagram accounts they you know, and there's more of these too. There's 6 a.m. success, which is obviously, you know, if you're not rolling by 6 a.m., you won't have success. Some of these, they focus on on different things, but they, they seem to gravitate mostly around the content of luxury porn, the hollow quotes, and occasionally really overt fixation on wealth equating happiness or equating with happiness. That if you have money, then you'll be happy. These messages, they're, they're often coupled with this sort of everyone can do it mentality, kind of like American dream style thing. Everybody can be a millionaire. But here's the interesting thing that I found about them is that the profile links go to some fun places. The Success Club, their profile link leads directly to a Google form that is just titled Building High Quality Brands for Deserving Entrepreneurs. That's it. That's all it is. <laughs> It's just a Google form. This is obviously like this whole account, the success club, is just a lead building strategy. He's just trying to get people to sign up for his thing. Yeah. This other one, 6am success, links to 6amsuccess.com, which is just a content site. It is just bad articles, one after another, bad articles about billionaire business porn. And that's all it is. It's just porn about executives and you know, celebrity billionaires. That's the whole thing. The entire thing is that. <laughs> yeah. Millionaire mentor. Uh, another profile. 7.9 million followers. Same content. A lot of it is like, this is actually, they're just stealing from each other, these accounts. You'll see the same posts between these different accounts. There is no evidence that they are. there's any affiliation between these profiles. They are reusing one another's content, probably without permission. They're just robbing one another. This one, you know, is really bad with the everyone can do it mentality. Their profile link leads to Jason Stone's uh, Car- uh, Kartra page, which is a sign up form for a quote, 
exclusive community, <laughs> which is probably some sort of cult where they're going to murder you if you show up to any kind of event in person. But more likely, it is some sort of uh, scam mentor group or mastermind or something where you need to pay a couple of thousand dollars to join. Jobs that pay well and have reasonable demands are scarce. And, you know, much more common are shit jobs with terrible pay. You have a lot of unhappy people in the workforce, and they are looking for any way out they possibly can. That makes them perfect victims for this kind of messaging. They're very receptive. They've, they've lost faith in the ability to, to somehow get a degree or get some sort of skilled training to be able to get themselves out of these situations. For some reason, we're not pushing people to go to, you know, become electricians and plumbers they, you know, where there actually is a job market. There is a demand for, for more workers in that, in, in that job market. And it does pay very well. We're not pushing this stuff. What we're pushing is this sort of fast track, this kind of easy money, like join the multi-level marketing scheme and start selling, you know, some terrible uh, supplements, cosmetics that have dubious sort. How do you feel about Tupperware? It's all Amway. I found some numbers about this. You know, this state of employment in the U.S. is driving people to optimize and monetize everything that they can. And the productivity porn is what they look at when they're when you know when they want to feel shitty that they haven't gotten the Maserati yet like Britney. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I you know I'd like to see some statistics on how many Maseratis Britney in fact right. has. <laughs> well, she doesn't have any cuz she doesn't have any money cuz her father keeps stealing it. I do I oh, do I do watch the, the news. Case, but that's not <laughs> You know the idea I mean, she won the case, yeah. is what I meant to say. But. So, you know, so the idea that, that everybody is agreeing to is that they need to be working 60 plus hours a week and, you know, and, and start monetizing their stamp collecting hobby or, or else they're not really trying. There was a, a bank rate survey in 2019 that, and in this survey, I mean, who knows how, 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 you know, accurate this thing is and, you know, what kind of standards they have, but they found 45% of people in Americans have a side hustle. People of working age have a side hustle. That's almost half our population. That's that's almost 150. That's, that's that's 150 million people in the United States that have that are trying to monetize something on the side. They're trying. They, they bought into this entrepreneurial thing. They're trying to do that, and that, that that is an example of a huge of half the country totally losing faith in the economic system. That's it. This yeah. this idea this uh, which is really a stable idea of working at a job and earning money and raising a family and you know paying for your kids college education and then the next generation does something relatively similar you're able to to have some vacations and go on holidays and stuff like that that is a very stable way to to run an economy to have that kind of structure in place but people aren't getting it yeah this is from another article on the seven best side hustles for parents uh, families spend approximately $12,988 annually per child in a middle-income two-child married couple family, according to 2015 data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. In this case, middle income is defined as $59,200 to $107,400 per year. That's middle income. <laughs> that little article goes on to try to encourage you to listen to the best side hustles for parents. You want to give your little ones the world, but your current household income isn't cutting it. Whether you're a working parent or one who stays at home with the kids, 
you're looking for a side hustle to earn extra cash in your spare time. Not that you have too much of that. Oh my god, this is literally the Tupperware Not that you have too much of that these days. Yeah. So I found another one from a website called Side Hustle Nation, which is hobbies that make money. Most of these were pretty innocuous. They were just things that you can do, you know, TaskRabbit, Fiverr, that kind of stuff. A lot of gig economy type things. But number 10, go grocery shopping for others. If you enjoy grocery shopping, now keep in mind, this is an article called Hobbies That Make Money. So somehow grocery shopping is now a hobby. (laughs) Which, by the way, if it's a hobby that makes money. It's a job uh, now. It's a job If If you enjoy grocery shopping or at least don't mind it, this hobby can be a way for, I mean, did did he even read this (laughs) before he wrote this thing? (laughs) Do do they mean... Amazon Go grocery. No, they're pickers. talking about Instacart specifically. <laughs> That's, I, was, I was saying a different version of the same it's, thing. Yeah. Oh, oh my, my god. god. I mean, seriously, I I don't have anything against entrepreneurship, but I definitely do not think this is for everyone. I don't think people under like I think people underestimate the the amount of risk involved in entrepreneurial type things. Most entrepreneurs' ideas don't work. They don't make money at any of them. Yeah. They will also, uh, because they, 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 so, they so detest the workforce, entrepreneurs will regularly work 60, 70 hours a week and make less money than they would make at a job working 40 because that's how much they don't want to go to a job. They will work more and make less than they would make with standard employment. Because they they have already bought into the idea that they can't go to a job and do that kind of work. It's their whole fucking identity. I think that there is a particular cut of person that that is suitable for. I really do. I think that there there are a lot of different kinds of people and there are some people where that's just the thing to do. Go live like that. Be the entrepreneur. But that's not a good idea for most people. And and even on top of that, I mean, I even if we're not talking about this idea of the of the entrepreneur uh, in its various forms that we could consider, even to understand a small business, uh, I think of the I think of a a little bit more nuts and bolts, two feet on the ground version of what we're talking about, which is the chef who is an incredible chef and makes great food and is creative and all the things who decides to open a restaurant which has fucking razor thin margins if you know anything about the industry which i only know by proxy but nevertheless he says i'm going to start a restaurant because i'm very uh, good at at being a chef well fuck that doesn't mean that he knows anything about yeah. keeping books it doesn't know mean that he knows a damn thing about um how to make sure that he's in compliance with the right. local laws you know all all the things that are involved in the operation of an enterprise that is a very different skill set and marketing. There's, and- there's obviously a lot more, a lot more to it, to the business aspect of things than the than the quality of the food. We're pushing people collectively to do these sorts of things because the system is fucking broken. This is not yeah. a stable way to structure a society. This isn't a stable way for people to live, where they're reading some article and trying to make side money monetizing some hobby and and by the way that that's kind of what i mean by my comment about the chef is i, I don't mean to glorify business owners in that no statement. you're saying I'm, it's complicated I'm just saying that you know like it's yeah 
it's it's complicated and on top of it i'm i'm kind of saying that like just cuz you're a great fucking chef uh uh it doesn't mean that that's the methodology that makes sense for a lot of people as you were saying it makes way more sense to be a chef because right. you're a good chef and our system is so broken that the person who's a good chef can't be a fucking chef but you might actually enjoy cooking yeah you know, the, like some of the and, the, and these, all of these articles actually, for the most part, are just absolute bullshit. This uh, seven best hides, side hustles for parents one from gobankingrates.com. My God. But, you know, this is recent. This is September 13, 2021. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, virtual assistant, uh, blogger. I mean, how is that a side hustle to be a blogger? Do they have any idea, like, how, how how do you make money off of it? What's the, you know, how does it, you know, it says, <laughs> there's, a, there's a, so there's a UK-based digital marketing firm uh, called Click Intelligence. And so the co-founder of this, of this company called Simon, his name is Simon Brisk. He says, blogging gives you the freedom to choose when and where to work. This is extremely important when you have a full-time job and children <laughs> to look after. What the hell is he talking about? What, what I mean, is this, 2008? Job, I mean, so then what, somebody reads this and they're like, well, maybe I'll try blogging. It says here, you know, through affiliate marketing, Simon Blick was able to make $2,000 a month. Okay, what? This is, and you know, and of course, all of these are linked to an article that focuses on the specific thing. How to make money blogging in 2021. A freelance worker. It just says freelance. I don't, it doesn't say for what, you know, that's just, just freelance worker. Equipment rental. Oh, man. This isn't a side hustle. This guy started a business, like, renting out paddle boards. That's not a side hustle. That's a that's just <laughs> that's a business. That's a side hustle. That's a business. And here's one. Here's that's a crafter. That's a brick and mortar. You know, basically sell your shit on Etsy. Yeah. A babysitter. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Needed to read an article about that one. Dog walker. Yeah. Yeah. I, this, th- I mean, this this is just terrible. Yeah. This cool new, this cool new side hustle you've never heard of. Do you like I mean, trimming bushes like, and shrubbery? I mean, she might. The woman who wrote this <laughs> might as well have learned about you know, might as well have like like come across the blogging article herself before she wrote this terrible post. You know, this terrible article. How do you how do you feel about newspapers and making sure they get to people's doorsteps on time? <laughs> right, exactly. Like, what do you what do you think about you know pizza delivery as an occupation? <sighs> Yeah, I I knew a guy uh, that I worked with, you know, a, a long time ago, and yeah, you know, he was one of the saddest men that I've ever known in my life. <laughs> and 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 I mean, I don't I I don't actually mean that in a funny way. I mean, he really was a sad oh, okay. person, you know, and in a deep in a significant sort of way. We we worked at the same job. He worked every bit as many hours as I did, and then he went home and he delivered pizzas for like four or five hours almost every day after wow. work. And he had 10 children at home. Jesus like, Christ. I mean, what a miserable goddamn existence. I mean, yes, I'm sure he loved his kids and they gave him great joy. No doubt. You know, like at least I sure as hell hope he did. I mean, I hope he loved his kids and they gave him great joy. Litter, you <laughs> may as well enjoy it. He's just shy of a dozen. And I mean, he did nothing but work. I wasn't making that great of money and he was much older than me. And he was working every bit as much as I was, you know, like this is, you know, I was working 40, 50 hours a week because I'd pick up overtime and he was doing the, he was matching me, you know, all the time matching me. 
And then he'd go to this other job and, you know, for shit money, driving his car around, his beat up car, you know, like working for minimum wage and tips, delivering pizzas. My God. You know, for like Domino's or something. And that was, wow, that was, uh, that was. That had to be 2008. That was, no, 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 no. That was, that was actually, that was actually like 99. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I just, I have a hard time believing his lot has improved in any significant way, unless he's like the manager of the the, the pizza restaurant now or something like that. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a sad thing. Obviously, people have to do what they have to do to get by. They have to survive. And, and, you know, and look at their own, look after their own interests. And, and si- you know, these like side second jobs and side hustles and, you know, whatever else, you know, like that's a workaround in a dysfunctional economy where people don't earn a living wage. But people only need workarounds when the system isn't serving their needs. That's the only time that you ever need a workaround is because something's broken. And and I don't think that there's anything on the horizon that's going to fix it. Nobody's trying to do something that's going to fix this. One thing I, I made a small note here that I wanted to mention earlier, and I think it ties right into what we're saying here, is that we said earlier about neoliberalism, that it, that it, crosses parties and 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 it is part of the established order uh but in addition to that we can also look at this idea of scientific management as not being relegated to just the uh gung-ho capitalist ethos where when we look at lenin and i and i want to point out an important side note here before i say the next thing uh, which is that Lenin and Leninism and much of what we saw in the 20th century was a distinct departure from Marxism as it was understood at that time and mainstream Marxism and socialism and communism at that time. But because the uh, October coup won out and the USSR became, after Lenin and his lot took over the provisional government, became basically the mainstay of what was understood to be socialism, then we forgot all about what was being discussed at that time and prior to it. Now, that that caveat aside, prior to what I'm saying, uh, Lenin himself described very clearly in Attacks in Kind and some other places that uh, what he was trying to do was not in any way socialism, um, but state capitalism. And uh, that it was necessary to do so for all the reasons that he thought was necessary. But what was employed in the USSR and later in other places, and, and we really saw it uh, throughout the 20th century in, in so-called socialist countries, uh, was exactly this same scientific management that we saw in the capitalist countries on the other side of the Cold War. Uh, so you know that that's actually there's actually a side note here is that um one of uh I, I don't know if you want to call him one of uh one of Taylor's proteges but definitely a follower of Taylor's work and an advocate of Taylor's ideas um actually went to the USSR and taught them how to do scientific management <laughs> yeah exactly now this is all, this is all before the Cold War and. And so, you know, the relationship with the uh, with the USSR and the United States was very different at that point. And then, of course, you know, that transformed again after world during and after World War Two. 
in the following decades, that that aspect of it was significantly downplayed, if not completely uh, unacknowledged, that Taylorism made its way directly into the Soviet Union's uh, outlook on how to uh, on how to to create more efficiency. They were at that point. There there are some. Um, you know, Lenin specifically and other people high up in the in the Communist Party at that point in the USSR were very interested in the uh, in the production efficiency of the United States. And they saw that as being a necessary component in structuring their economy. They, they saw that as as required, that they had to increase efficiency. And they saw the Americans as excelling beyond all other modern nations at that time in efficiency. And by the way, it so that's work. why that. Yeah, and then so and that's that, and because it was effective, that's why they brought they brought the the basically you know they weren't called consultants at the time, but this team of of scientific management consultants over from the U.S. Later on, that like all of that was denied on both sides yeah. of the Cold War. <laughs> yeah. You know, the Soviets didn't want to acknowledge the U.S. contribution, and the the U.S. didn't not want to acknowledge that they had contributed. You know that they'd had that kind of friendly relation with the Soviet Union in those earlier years. So, like like you were saying, like it actually did happen that people went over there and set up manufacturing systems and you know did worker efficiency training, and they brought those same standard. Um, you know those same uh, uh, documentations of worker activities, and they use that same that same uh, documentation to of the all of all those jobs to train the Soviet workers in the same way. I think of the side hustles in in uh, these uh, uh, strictly managed command economies as something that we saw as as increasing, if you will, black markets. In those areas mm-hmm. where there the, the side hustle was, you know, uh, uh, whatever was on the black market, but there was absolutely a market there. And increasingly so in the waning years towards the fall of the and, and dissolution of USSR. But it's the same thing. It's the same thing. And, it, and, it, and it's still here, too. When you're in a in a major city in the U.S., like you're in Chicago or New York, I think this is more of an East Coast thing than a West Coast thing. But you can buy cigarettes on the street sometimes. Lucy's. Okay, where do you think where do you think those came from? Those are stolen. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they excuse like, me, they, they fell off the back of a truck. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, they fell off the back of a truck. This is stolen stuff that you can buy on the street. These kinds of workarounds. And how prevalent the the workarounds are, and I mean, I'll, I'll throw in all criminal activity because most criminal activity is not committed by people who are sort of criminals by nature or some nonsense like that, like we talked about last time, in the uh, in the episode on Weber. These are people who have who are doing you know committing these criminal acts out of necessity. Yeah, and and also because they've been you know they've been brainwashed by you know by our modern culture into thinking that they need shit they don't need you know and because they don't have any way to get those things they resort to violence to to you know to get those things or theft it doesn't have to be violence in the case of petty theft that's the overwhelming majority uh, besides drugs of crime if you will in but the you know States. look at the drug use as well people are doing drugs because they have you know they're un- they have unsatisfying lives yeah and that too and again their prospects are so dim that they want to just escape entirely. These are different workarounds to the same dysfunctional system. 
to address the same problems. Yep. And by the way, I said theft earlier. I, I meant to say property crime. When I was a kid, I was convinced that I needed all kinds of stuff that I couldn't get because we didn't have much money in my family. And I became a prolific shoplifter. I think that that over the course of the last couple of years that I was in high school, I probably stole tens, tens of thousands of dollars of clothes and CDs because that's how old I am. CDs were important. <laughs> I stole a lot of music. I stole small electronics. I stole clothes. I, I hope this podcast gets cool enough that Gen Z is is listening and is in awe at our reference to this CD. Yeah, wait, whatever that is, right? When, when I grew up, phones were plugged into a wall. <laughs> <laughs> So Julian, these episodes are are uh, are starting to run really long, and I think it's a uh, some of it's because both of us are very long winded, and we're both trying to get everything in in every episode, and yeah, so they're uh, they're 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 we we have a lot of things to say. We, I, I know. I, at least we think we have a lot of things to say. Um. <laughs> so anybody who's listening to this, <laughs> let us know what you think about the length of these episodes. Uh, they take a long time to edit and a long time to record. Uh, if you like the length, or maybe you'd like to hear something a bit more brief, uh, we've been recorded. This one is probably going to be nearly 120 minutes long. <laughs> it's it's 1 a.m. Sean's time. Yeah, it's, it's after 1 o'clock where I am right now. So, yeah, let us know uh, what, you, what you think about the length of the episodes. We're open to uh, to suggestions about things and all kinds of feedback. If you uh, if you want to send us some hate mail, you can send it to Jules at wetwire.net. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know all of your uh, all of your love and uh, and and uh, and gifts from Amazon. Uh, you can find me on my my, my wish list. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, it's like it's like running a cam show. <laughs> so as always, we are very grateful for anybody who is going to listen to this, and we would love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter. Uh, Julian and I are both on Facebook. Sometimes I, I don't know if you send me a message on Facebook, I probably won't see it for a long time. You can find me on Instagram sometimes. Uh, definitely Twitter, I'm more active. Jules, where, where can they find you? I'm often Julesian hooligan in different social media platforms. So just roll the dice. All right. So hunt, hunt around. You know, like if you want to find them, do the work. <laughs> you can definitely find uh, our podcast Twitter feed at. Uh, what is it? Wet wired pod? Is it wet wired? Who's to Who say? Knows? Look at that. What is that going to be? I don't know. You find us. <laughs> <laughs> and Patreon. And let us know what you think of the show. And by all means, you know, if, if you can, uh, if you can spare a couple of dollars a month, we would really appreciate any of the, uh, any support you can give us on Patreon.
Tonight, the extraordinary impact of Frederick Winslow Taylor. At the turn of the century, when the Industrial Revolution hit its stride and was beginning to change everything, Frederick Winslow Taylor became convinced that one machine could turn America into an economic powerhouse, the stopwatch. 